Well, a very good morning again to everyone that's here. Uh, this morning, we're going to be spending our time in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. So won't you just take your Bibles and turn there so long? It's not going to be projected behind me, uh, so you will need to follow along throughout the service in your own Bible. Uh, but while you're turning there, let me just say a very special good morning and welcome back to all of you who were here yesterday. Uh, if you, like me, were very encouraged once again to sit under the Word, to worship together with God's people, and uh, just to be reminded once again of our great need for a Savior, the, that great need, and its absolute perfect fulfillment in Christ, the, the wonderful grace and mercy of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the grace of God who, who sends exactly what we needed at the right time, and as the writer to the Hebrews says, who is able to save to the uttermost. Uh, what an incredible, incredible reminder. Uh, so thank you to Shane and, and to the team who led us yesterday. And uh, again, a, a very good morning to everyone here. Now, it's the day after Christmas, but I'd like you to imagine with me that we've moved forward one week since the birth of Christ. The sky had been full of angels announcing Christ's birth, shepherds leaving their flocks to come and see this boy king, wise men being led to the side of a humble baby's throne. And I'm sure all parents here can replay the story of their own children and their birth, and very much so for Mary and Joseph. The long uh, trek up to, uh, to Bethlehem on a donkey, the frantic search for somewhere to stay, and a humble manger cot of little baby Jesus. And it's at this point that we find ourselves staring down from above at the unfolding story of Jesus. And as Luke wrote this portion of Scripture, being uh, aware of how Jesus' life and ministry unfolded, imagine all that he ha could have written of at this point. Imagine where he could have gone. He could have perhaps focused on Jesus' miracles, the, the healing of a man with a demon in chapter 4, uh, the paralytic in chapter 5, the man with a withered hand in chapter 6, or perhaps he could have focused on an area of Jesus' teaching, such as the Sabbath or the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he could have jumped into Jesus' parables and his teaching on the kingdom of God. What's incredible is that with the wealth of information that Jesus had, uh, sorry, that uh, Luke had at his fingertips, he chooses to move forward one week in time. Unlike the writer, John, uh, who, who takes us almost in a bird's eye view of the whole ministry and life of Jesus, Luke takes us and he zooms right into a personal moment of Jesus' parents, of Mary and Joseph, right in the temple. And he takes us right to the details, and that's meant to excite us, but also it's meant to help us understand the main characters of this, of this passage. And we know that Jesus is where the focus will lie, and as we read, we'll see that. Uh, but what I want us to try and do is imagine you are Mary and Joseph's best friend, and you were, you were dragged along to the temple this morning to come and see the presentation of Jesus. That's the intimacy of this passage. That's really where our viewing is coming from. We're not meant to see it disconnected and break it up into too many segments. We're meant to be right there with them. And we'll then, I think, we'll feel and I believe we'll see the truth of what Jesus uh, is, is doing, what God is revealing to us about what we're meant to know about Jesus from this passage and what the Holy Spirit is going to use to convict our hearts uh, to live more like Christ because of this passage. So please read with me. Uh, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus the name given him by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, that every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When he brought, when he brought, so when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light of, for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts and hearts of many may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God day and night with fasting and prayer. At the very moment, at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Let's pray and just commit our time to the Lord, and then we'll, we'll continue. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I ask humbly this morning, Lord, that you would come and teach us. By your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see the wonderful, marvelous truths of your word. Would you take us beyond mere knowledge into a deep experience of who you are, that by your word and by the conviction, by the challenge and the encouragement of these words, Lord, that you would use them to transform us more into the image of Jesus. Would you cause us through them to love one another well? Would we see our sinfulness and our need for a savior? Would we come away from here broken and contrite, but encouraged and amazed? Lord, please work in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in the first place then, what I would like us to look at this morning is the circumcision of Jesus. And like I said in my introduction, I'm going to try my best to not break up the passage into too many parts. I think it really does disconnect us from what, what the overall picture is here. But we're going to look at Jesus' circumcision in verse 21. It reads as this, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And it's important for us to notice two separate parts of the short statement. Firstly, that Jesus was circumcised according to the Jewish custom and the ceremonial law so that he could identify with his people Israel. Jesus said he came to keep the law, to uphold the law, not to break the law. He came to identify with his people to be a perfect sacrifice. And for that, he needed to be able to identify with his people. We read also in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9 to 12, that God said to Abraham, Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of a covenant between me and you. 
Throughout the generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. And this is what Jesus' parents are keeping. So Jesus is circumcised. But the more important statement here is actually what follows, is that he is given the name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus' name is essential if we're going to understand the incarnation or the coming of God in human flesh. And if we were to look back at the roots of Jesus' name, it's a Jewish name, which means Joshua. And Joshua, the, the Jewish name, also means Jehovah is salvation, but it carries another element there, which we see partly fulfilled in the person and work of Joshua in the Old Testament, and that is to be saved from bondage. It's to be saved from your captors. But if we were to understand the kind of Messiah that the Jews were looking for at that time, we will understand why someone coming with the name Jesus was important. The kind of Messiah that the, the Jews were anticipating was a military king, a strong man, a man who would remove their chains and free them from their earthly captors, who would fight for them and quite literally go to battle for them. What we see is uh, echoes of this in Luke's gospel. If you were to turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 71, in Zechariah's song, uh, if you will turn there for a moment, we, we, see, we see Luke write this. This is Zechariah. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. And here's the point. Here's what Zechariah is promising. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. And while we do see later in God's word that the final fulfillment of Jesus in his second coming is the complete and utter destruction of all who oppose him and his people, the initial fulfillment of the Messiah is not like that. But for Jesus to receive the name Jehovah, Jehovah is salvation, carries enormous implications. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus brings a different kind of salvation, the kind of salvation that the Jews were not looking for, the kind of salvation which we'll see in our passage got people to oppose him, the kind of salvation which the promised Messiah was to bring, but the people who claimed the promise were not expecting. Uh, but we'll look a little bit forward into this later on. Uh, but this time of the year is actually a great time of the year for us to pause and think about this, Jehovah's salvation. And perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning, but you're here because you were faithfully invited by a Christian friends or family. And if you are, fantastic, welcome. Uh, but at the same time, I'd like to ask you what this statement means to you. Jehovah is salvation. What do you think when you hear the words salvation or to be saved? I'm sure you've heard it from Christians. I'm, I'm sure you might have come across it in Christianity or the ideas in religion. Uh, but let me ask, do you believe that God will save you? Do you believe that you need to be saved? Do you believe that you will be saved? Uh, how you answer the question of what is Jehovah is salvation, what does it mean to you, will impact everything about what you do with the person whose name is Jehovah is salvation. In the second place then, and we'll revisit this a little bit later, in the second place then I want us to look at the purification of Mary in verse 22 to verse 24. And we see three times echoed the statement of the law, and we'll deal with that a little bit later as well. But what I'd like us to do is just detour for a moment and focus on Mary and Joseph's offering at the temple. We read in verse 22 to 24 that they offered a pair of young pigeons or turtle doves. Now, according to Leviticus 6, the offering for a firstborn son was meant to be a lamb or 
if you were dirt poor, two doves. If you had nothing, that was okay. So there's just two short points that I want to bring, us, to bring our attention to here. Firstly, to parents. Can I suggest, parents, that your most powerful witness to your families, especially to your children and to your spouse, is your obedience to God. You can be a pastor, a door steward, a worship leader, a deacon, and your relationship with the Lord can be seen as fake and nothing by your children and your family if there is no obedience to the Lord. You do not need a lot. Look at Mary and Joseph. You do not need a lot to be obedient. In fact, it is often in the plenty that we find it most difficult to not have our mind clouded out towards the things of God by all of our earthly possessions. Your children need your enthusiasm about prayer and your loving support for their mom or dad far more than your enthusiasm about their distinctions or sporting achievements. Your wife needs your willingness to repent and apologize far more than your salary. Your husband needs your respect and care far more than your service to him or to your children. The way that we as Christians can truly impact those around us, and I I really do believe this, is by starting in our families and by starting with obedience to the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And John writes in in 1 John 3, 16, that this is how we know what love is, that we lay down our lives for one another as Christ has for us. So there is a direct link between our love for God and our love for one another. So families, parents especially, obedience to the Lord is how you will show your love for God and how you will truly win your families. Secondly, salvation is never found in the hands of the proud or the self-sufficient. And I want us to see this in the hands of Mary and Joseph. God's salvation is never found, never found in the hands of those who believe that they do not need God. God's grace of salvation is found by those who see their great need. Mary wrote about this in her Magnificat, her song in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, verse 48, where she writes, For God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And we see this here at the temple when they offer absolutely the minimum requirements. They bring nothing, but they bring it obediently. In Scripture, physical need is often seen as a picture of spiritual need, and so we need to see that correlation. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when Jesus is teaching, who are those who reject him but the rich and the religious? Who are those who accept him but the broken, the contrite, the sinners who see their need for a savior? There are those who saw their brokenness. They saw that they were rebels fighting for the enemy. But when they were confronted with Jesus, there was two groups of people. Those who believed that Jesus brought nothing and so had nothing to offer. And so why accept someone with nothing? What can they bring me? And the others who saw that they needed everything and that their hands were truly empty and obediently through faith in Christ, they trusted him. And perhaps this Christmas time is exactly the right time to reflect on this truth, a time where people will go into debt to buy presents, uh, to put on extravagant feasts, to eat, to give, to drink and be merry. In a world where everything is about looking better and being more self-sufficient, where we even post photos of ourselves with filters so that we can look better, and I know that's normal to us today, but if you think about how ridiculous that is as a concept, we as Christians ought to be thinking far more counterculturally and to not forget our great need for salvation. God did not bring salvation to us so that we can then pretend that we never needed it in the first place. 
Salvation is meant to show us every single day that we have a great need every single day. But we must be careful here. And I want to just maybe poke at our own consciences here at Honeyridge. To many, self-sufficiency is seen in the wealthy businessmen accumulating great sums of money and keeping them all to themselves. That's what we see as self-sufficient. But that is true. And can I say that that is true of many today. And many wealthy people will answer before the Lord about what they did with what the Lord gave them. But can I suggest that many people, if not most people, will never be in that state of living. And so we cannot pretend that our own hearts are not going to fall into a lane of self-sufficiency. We cannot pretend that we don't need the Lord to confront us with this as well. And so can I ask that we look at types of pride which perhaps uh, we might fall into ourselves. Uh, perhaps for some parents, it's if my children attend this school or that school or are homeschooled, then they will get a kind of life which is necessary. If I just got a slightly better job, our family will be fine. If we just had a slightly safer or nicer car, then we'll be fine. If we semigrate to Cape Town, things will be fine. If we emigrate overseas, then things will be fine. Or perhaps it's even being so self-confident in our own health and in our ability to fight and ignore issues like COVID. Wherever our self-sufficiency lies, wherever we become prideful and arrogant, that's where we are at risk of losing the gospel. None of these things are evil in and of themselves. And can I just say that gifts, blessings, possessions, and health, all of these things belong to the Lord. These are all the Lord's things, and he gives them to his people and to the world generously to show his incredible grace and to show the wonders of his love. It's when we become confident in these things. It's when we begin to place our trust in these things that we lose the gospel. We lose our great need. And I, I know that perhaps I'm going to a, a further back point of application on this, but it's interesting that in our lives and in Scripture, the more money and possessions that we have, the more earthly treasures that we amass, the less spiritually in tune we are to our great spiritual needs. It's when we begin to place our great confidence in these lesser things that we lose focus on the great gospel. And yes, absolutely, we are at risk of becoming prideful over our spiritual state, but I think the back end of application is really where many of our hearts struggle. At the core of it, I don't believe that many people who, who say that they know the Lord will say that they don't need to trust the Lord for their salvation. But I think these are really areas that we even here at Honeyridge would struggle with. So what do we see in Mary and Joseph when it comes to this? Well, they come to the temple obediently as parents, trusting the Lord under the law as those who come with nothing but obediently empty hands. This is where we'll be spending the, the remainder of our, sorry, it, it, we'll be moving on to spend the remainder of our time this morning uh, in the third place, uh, which is going to be the presentation of Jesus. Uh, so we're just going to be going from verse 25 to verse 38. So in verse 25 to verse 38, we have this presentation of Jesus at the temple. And here we see one man, a man named Simeon, who by the Holy Spirit goes to the temple and meets Mary and Joseph. And here this man praises God for God's salvation. We also see a prophetess named Anna come and praises God when she sees Jesus, also for God's salvation. And both Simeon and Anna recognize what God has done in bringing Jesus into the world. So that's just a, a quick summary. So let's, let's go through it a bit more carefully. Luke tells us in verse 25 that Simeon was looking forward to Israel's consolation. 
And at the end of verse 37, we see that Anna as well was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The common theme here is that both Simeon and Anna were both anticipating the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. And when God brought Jesus into the world and his parents presented him at the temple, both Simeon and Anna praised God and publicly proclaimed that this baby boy, this is the Christ. Now, perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time or, or perhaps because of the, the world that we live in, things don't amaze us much anymore. But imagine pointing to a baby and saying, this is the Christ. I think we lose the wonder and the mystery of what God did by humbling himself and coming in the form of a baby. We're also told in verse 25 that Simeon was a righteous and devout man and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. We likewise see a kind of excellence in service from God, uh, to God from Anna, who spent 84 years of her life at the temple day and night praying and fasting. Together, Simeon and Anna play an important role, and the commentators point this out, which is helpful, and they are a picture of believing Israel, of those who truly are waiting for the Messiah, of those who trust God. We will see in a few verses' time that Simeon prophesies about Jesus, causing many in Israel to walk away, but here both Simeon and Anna serve as examples of those who truly love and trust the Lord. But not only do they serve as examples of those who trust the Lord, but they also serve as credible witnesses to the coming of Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, perhaps if you were to have a bumper bashing outside the church here on Bayes Nordia, and you needed to give the police or your insurance company uh, a little bit of information about the accident, who would you go to? Would you go to the person that was sitting next to you at the robot that was sitting on their cell phone but claims they saw everything? Would you perhaps go to the person that came to you after the accident and said, I know that person, I don't like them, I'll say whatever is necessary, I'm on your side? Or would we go to the person who had the most integrity? Would we go to the most reliable and most respected? Would we go to the one who remembered the details, who never lied and who was trustworthy? Well, that is part of what we're seeing here in Luke's account, is that both Simeon and Anna were trustworthy, honorable, and godly people who were far more invested in God than they were in Mary and Joseph. These were people who knew the prophecies, who trusted the Lord, and who waited a long, long time for this moment. It would not have been a problem to wait two more days, two more months, two more years, if that's what God was doing to bring the true Messiah. They were in no rush to point to a baby and say, this is the one. If Jesus was not the Christ, they would not have been duped. Now, if you're ever in a conversation with an unbeliever, and I'm speaking specifically to the Christians here, and the factual, evidential, historical nature of Scripture comes up, this is one of those passages that you can go to. It is a great principle passage that neither Simeon nor Anna had any reason to lie. Never alone had any reason to agree to lie. They both loved and trusted the Lord, and when they saw Jesus, they both agreed independently and together that this is the Christ. This is Jesus. His name is Jehovah, is salvation. You might ask, why do we get into these details? And we might miss it if we forget why Luke wrote his accounts of the gospel in the first place. We see in the, in the start of Luke chapter 1 that he chose to write an orderly account so that the factual information of Jesus' life and ministry would be recorded. Luke, a typical doctor, being detail-oriented, chooses to go to the most reliable witnesses of the time. And here we have the account of two of the most reliable witnesses of the time. Friends, when we share the gospel, 
And we talk about a man who came in the form of a child, God himself, from a virgin. We are not talking in the realm of the natural. We're presenting supernatural information to a dead and dying and broken world. We will need to have confidence in God's word. And this is one of those places. I I love apologetics, but I love apologetics because God's word is clear. God truly speaks. He wants us to know him. So if you're ever worried about presenting something which sounds ridiculous like a virgin birth, you have clear and reliable information to do so with confidence, being able to trust the Lord. So if you're going into the rest of the holidays and perhaps you've also got the next couple of days off, who is the Lord placing on your heart to share the gospel with? What friends or family are perhaps staying with you until the 3rd of January before they also head home or or perhaps go back to work? Who could you be sharing this reliable account of God's only son, born in human flesh, presented at the temple with around this Christmas time. Not only in our evangelism, but perhaps to prick at our own hearts briefly here, how do you feel when you read about Simeon or Anna's life? Are you, st- are you stirred or de- about their dedication to the Lord? Do you hear of Simeon being righteous and ask whether or not that can and is said, can be or is said about your life? Do you hear about Anna's commitment to prayer and fasting to the local temple or church of God and feel compelled to be more fervent in prayer or in your love or or to be able to love God's people well? What do these examples stir up within you? Not only are Simeon and Anna examples of those who faithfully loved the Lord, but they're also examples of those whose lives had been radically transformed through their trust in God's Messiah. If you're a Christian here today, does your life look different because of your trust in God's Messiah? Does your life look different because of your trust in Jesus? In Jehovah is salvation. Do you find yourself worshiping Jesus at the thought of him? Not only in song on Sundays, but as Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1 and 2, in a life which is conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. Do you find that you test everything in your life, whether it be the series or the movies you watch on Netflix, the music that you listen to, the way you speak to your spouse, or how you feel about your job against the Word of God in order to know how you can better worship God? If your answer is no, then can I ask you to look again to this same baby Jesus, the salvation of God for the forgiveness of your sins. Jehovah is salvation. We speak often in this church about how our sin separates us from God and how we need God to draw us near. But can I ask you to look and see how righteousness and godliness also drives us to God? One of the most common threads in Christians' lives is that we're incredibly short-sighted. We went to Jesus for salvation, but we struggle to understand how living for Jesus every day draws us nearer to God. If you want to see your prayers answered, follow after God. If you want to get much out of your quiet times for your time in God's word to be effective, obey God's word. If you want to walk in the spirit, do what Jesus commands. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Some might see this as legalistic, but also do not miss James's words that faith without works is dead. In many ways, I personally have grown very weary this year in hearing Christian after Christian buying into the latest and greatest sensations of the world, whether it be the series or the stuff we watch on TV, the movie, the, mu- the movies and music, whether it, being, whether it be being suckered into fake news and conspiracy theories about COVID or the end times, whether it be people entertaining sexual sin or, or, pushing, or parents even pushing their children to the brink of depression with unhelpful expectations. 
It sometimes seems as though we truly believe that we can serve God while serving our own desires. It really does sometimes seem that we will defend fervently our right to commit ourselves to the things of this world while claiming that this Jesus, Jehovah is salvation, has truly worked in our hearts. There are many who allow this sort of garbage from the world to come into our lives, and then we're surprised when our children look and sound like 18-plus movies, when families are falling apart. And perhaps that's one of the incredible blessings of God, which I think will be revealed in the years to come, is that during this COVID time, we've been forced to truly interact with one another. We've missed fellowship. Families that have been broken have been forced to be in relationship with one another. Husbands and wives have to spend true time together. Children locked up together. Families forced to teach. Husbands and wives forced forced to communicate with one another and with their children. Co-workers and spouses forced to be in relationships which are difficult and tense. And what we've seen is a kind of brokenness which comes from it. If, in fact, your life is falling apart and you are not like what we see with Simeon and Anna, then the good news is that Jesus is Jehovah, is salvation. But this passage is not focusing us on Simeon or Anna, so I want us to look forward to Simeon's song in, chapter, in, in verse 28 to verse 32. As Jesus is presented at the temple, as he's taken up, Simeon grabs him and raises him up in his arms, and he praises God in song. With the words of the Holy Spirit's promise ringing in his heart from verse 26 that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ, Simeon looked at this baby boy and no doubt held him up there with all of his fat folds and with his little chubbiness and he proclaimed that this is God's salvation. And now he has peace to die. Isn't that interesting that he combined those two? Isn't that profound? This is often seen as a season of plenty, plenty of family and friends, food, presents, stuff, more stuff and lots of stuff. Are we usually more at peace at the end of this season? Does your family usually feel more at peace at the end of this busy rush, this commercialized time in the world? What about at the end of January when there's more month than money? How's that peace doing then? Simeon's peace was found in one thing. In verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon understood that this salvation was not only for him, though, but that he goes on to sing in verse 31 and and verse 32 that the salvation is prepared in the presence of all people, that Jesus will go on to be presented to the whole world. Hebrews 7 verse uh, verse 25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to him through God. In John 3, verse 16, John writes that all who believe will have eternal life. Simeon continues that Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles and that he will be the glory to your people Israel. And while there are many people who will acknowledge Jesus was a good man, this is not the same as trusting Jesus to be Jehovah is salvation. Muslims call Jesus a prophet. Mormons say that Jesus was a God. Eastern religions say that Jesus was one of the wisest and most gentle storytellers. Simeon says that Jesus is Jehovah, is salvation, that he is the light of the world and not any normal light which sits in the darkness, but rather a light which delivers out of darkness. 
Imagine with me a room which has one light in it, a dark room with a single light. If you flip on the light, near the light it's bright, outside of the light it's dark. That is not the kind of light which is being described here. Rather, it is the kind of light which pervades the entire room, which draws the darkness out, which banishes it and brings more light in. It is light. And this is the same way that Jesus is light to the Gentiles. He brings them into himself and creates new light. He makes a people. In the same way, Jesus is the full realization of Israel's glory. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah the coming king, the Christ, the one who will rule and who will reign, the one who will set the captives free. And all of this, sitting as a baby in Simeon's arms. Even for Mary and Joseph, who were prompted by a literal angel who saw miracles in their own lives, standing here, hearing this, that Jesus is, Jehovah is salvation, were amazed at what they heard. The question which I had to ask myself while preparing this was, am I amazed at Jesus? Are we amazed? Are we amazed at God's salvation? That that salvation lay there in the arms of Simeon as a helpless baby boy. Also, are we amazed that 2,000 years ago, Simeon wrote a song and he sang a song which included you and me. And boys and girls, if there's any of you that are here this morning, do you understand that? That this man sang a song about boys and girls just like you and me. And that he wrote this and he sang this all those years ago when he said that Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. Simeon is inviting you and your mommies and your daddies to trust in Jesus, this Jesus, just like he did. He trusted that Jesus was God's way of saving his people and he trusted in nothing besides this Jesus. I'm sure some of you have seen maybe your moms and your dads when they're cooking or when they're, they're baking and they don't have the right ingredients and it ruins everything. When God sent Jesus, he sent the perfect Jesus, the exact right person. He sent his one and only son, Jehovah is salvation, who would save his people. Like Simeon, the way that we take hold of God's salvation is to trust God that Jesus is his way of saving us from our sins, to embrace him, to literally take him into our arms by taking Jesus onto ourselves and trusting in him. If we truly trust Jesus, this Jesus is our salvation, the glory of God's people. There is a warning, however, that we read in verse 34 and verse 35, that Jesus would also cause the rise and fall of many in Israel and that he would be opposed. Now, a question that comes logically from this, because all of this is good news to those who believe, is why would Jesus cause the rise and a fall? Well, Kent Hughes, a, a, a commentator, writes the, this. This is the necessary experience of all who come to Christ. For we must bow in humiliation and poverty of spirit before we can rise to new life in Christ. When we see our inadequacy, we are ready for God's grace. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 6 to 10. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor will come to you who do believe. But for the unbelieving, for those who will be brought low, the stone that the builder rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, a stone to stumble over, a rock to slip and trip over, they stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined to do this, but you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Notice none of that included us making our own decision. It's all God. A possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's the light of Christ to the Gentiles. Once you were not a people, you are now God's people. You who had not received mercy have now received mercy. Do we see the pattern here that God raises up a stone in Zion who becomes the cornerstone? He brings this baby boy into the world, Jesus, his own son, and some will reject him and stumble over it just like the stone. But the chosen, the holy nation, those who are God's own people, who are called out of darkness into light, who were not a people but are now a people, who did not have mercy but now have mercy, those are those who have faith in this Christ, that Jehovah is salvation. It is those who know their debt to God, who know their spiritual emptiness, those who understand their need. It is those who are raised up by Jesus. On the other hand, it is those who think much of themselves, who understate and underestimate their sin, who play games with God and who think highly of themselves, who will be brought low. Friends, by nature, every single one of us are sinners, rebels against God, who oppose the things of God. Our inner thoughts are nothing but evil and our hearts are darkened. We struggle to believe this because pride tells us that surely we're not as bad as we think, or at least we're not as bad as someone else. We always tend to raise ourselves up just high enough to feel slightly better than average and therefore have just enough confidence that we're probably fine with God. Simeon says in verse 34 to verse 35 that many people's hearts will be revealed. Is your heart being revealed this morning by the knowledge of Christ? Is God stirring in your own heart? Is the Holy Spirit quickening your own heart? Are you seeing your need for a savior? Do you see this Jesus, Jehovah is salvation? Are you willing to run to him? You're either like Simeon and Anna, someone who trusts in God's Christ, or you trust in yourself. And can I say like Simeon this morning, and can you say like Simeon this morning, can our hearts truly say this, that my eyes have seen your salvation, and that the result of that is I can depart in peace? Do you have peace because of this Christ? Do you have peace because of your knowledge of Jehovah is salvation? If you do not yet know Christ, if you are not yet a Christian, if you are not born again, take hold of Christ in your arms this morning. Look to the same Jesus, the one who was promised of old, the one who God sent faithfully to accomplish salvation for his people, who would perfectly buy back every single one of God's people because of his work on the cross, for his glory and because he loves us. So brothers and sisters, as we conclude, we must remind ourselves of what we've seen in this passage this morning. This baby Jesus is the mighty deliverer of God, the salvation of Jehovah for sinners like you and me. There is no hope for us outside of this Jesus. This baby Jesus who was presented at the temple would be the one who would die on the cross. Secondly, Jesus comes to the needy, those who are weary, brokenhearted, crushed, and poor in spirit. This morning, are you self-sufficient or are you joyfully needy? Thirdly, Jesus will cause the rise and fall of many. Are you a part of the mission of God in the spreading of the gospel to the nations? Never mind going to the far-reaching nations, are you reaching your neighbors? 
Do you know anyone that is not a Christian? Are you seeking opportunities to expend yourself for the cause of the gospel? Young people, if you're in school, can I ask you, is your schooling about your varsity education of the future or is your schooling about being a missionary while God prepares you? I understand that God raises us up to do different things in life, but I truly believe that God has called every single one of us to be ambassadors for the gospel. Are you a part of that mission? God will cause the rise and fall, but included in that is the rise. Perhaps you're pessimistic, and perhaps sometimes I am too, and we think of the fall, and we think of what if I go and I get rejected or lose friendships or or even lose family relationships, and while that is there, can I ask what better time is there to share with a dead person than while they're alive? Why wait until someone is no longer with us to sit back with regret and say, I wish we had shared with them one more time? I wish I risked a friendship for the sake of them knowing Christ. And lastly, does Jesus still amaze you? Do you think of Jesus and burst out into worship? And if not, perhaps you, like me, are blessed at this time of the year when we're able to gather so intentionally with joyful remembrance of Christ to be reminded once more of the wonder and grace of our Savior who came as a humble baby boy, that Jehovah is salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we look to your word this morning and we are amazed at what you have done. We're amazed, Lord, that in humility and in humiliation, Christ came as a humble baby boy. What awesome wonder that fills us with, Lord, for who can see that this was your plan? Who would count this as wisdom? Who would come in humility but the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the sending of Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus who would come as our savior, who would be our king, who would rule and reign. And while we, this side of heaven, are blessed to be able to look into your word every single day, we ask that even just this morning that you would stir our hearts once again to be reminded that this baby boy, Jesus, is Jehovah is salvation, the Lord's salvation for all who believe. Lord, stir our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.